Well, good morning. You guys go ahead and grab your Bibles if you have them. Deuteronomy chapter 7. If you need Bibles, there's some there on the chairs around you. If you are using those, you're going to go to either page 118 or if the Bible that you're using from the chair has a flame on the front of it, page 151. Deuteronomy chapter 7. As we continue to, to, to make our way through this, this uh, group of sermons by Moses. Um, have you... Um, as you're turning there to Deuteronomy 7, have you ever noticed that Christians, we might say maybe the people of God, are different? Okay. Um, maybe we might say sometimes they're weird. Anybody know any weird Christians? And do not look to the right or left. Okay. Some of y'all were humble enough to point to yourselves. <laughs> um, yes, yeah, so sometimes, sometimes people who name the name of Christ, they can be weird. And sometimes that weirdness is not a good weirdness. Sometimes it's a turnoff and doesn't necessarily need to be there. But certainly we could go back and say that, that Christians are different or they should be different, right? They should stand out. Um, is this a Christian world? No. So then people who are naming the name of Christ, who are living values that are based on who God is and how he's revealed himself, they should stand out. They should be set apart in the midst of the community that they're in or in the midst of the culture they're in, right? So, so the Christians are different. The people of God are different. But did you know that's by design? Did you know that that is by design? God calls his people, he calls his people to be different because he is different. He's not like any other God, and so therefore his people should not be like any other people. Instead, his people should be like him, right? And so God calls his people to be that way. This is what we're looking at this morning in Deuteronomy chapter 7, is that God calls his people to be different. And so here's how I'm going to sum that up. Because God sets his people apart, now, the way that the scriptures oftentimes will say that is he makes them holy. That, that word holy means to be set apart. It means to be distinct, to not be common, but to be uncommon in a good way. So God sets his people apart, or because God sets his people apart, his people must live set apart. So I'm saying to you today, before we jump in, if you're a believer in Christ, God has set you apart. You are holy. You are set apart. Therefore, you should live holy. You should live set apart. And that's what Moses is saying to these people. So you remember now, these people are standing on the cusp of going across the Jordan River, and they're going to enter into this land that God has promised for, for so many years. But before they get there, Moses is having to remind them of who this God is and what he requires of them so that they know how do we live in the context of a relationship with God. He's led us out of slavery. He's bringing us into the land. How do we live in a relationship with him? And so Moses is re-teaching them the law, the covenant, and he's calling them to recommit themselves to that before they go in to this land. And so let's take a look at Deuteronomy chapter 7, 
Because God sets his people apart, we should live set apart. And here's the first way we're going to see that God's people should live set apart. By not tolerating rivalries to God. One of the ways that God's people live set apart. If you're a Christian, if you're a believer in Christ, you've been given the Holy Spirit. One of the ways that you live set apart is you don't tolerate rivalries in your life to God. So look with me at Deuteronomy chapter 7. This will be our first 11 verses. It's our largest chunk, and then the other two will be a little shorter. So let's say a look. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 1. So when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, and he clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you, and when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them." So the people of God have already had some, some battles up to this point. You might remember um, as they're making their way up north towards the spot where they stand now, they came across two different kingdoms, two different kings and their people, Og and Sihon, king of Bashan. And we talked about how God just overwhelmingly conquered those two kings and those people on behalf of the, the people of Israel. And so now they're standing on the cusp of the river and they're going to go across. And these are some of the people that they're going to meet. People who are currently inhabiting the land that God has promised to give to the people of Israel. And he says to, Moses says to his people as he passes on God's word, when the Lord brings you into the land. In other words, when you cross over this river, of course, many of you will know the first city that they encounter as they cross over the river. Joshua fought the battle at Jericho, Jericho, right? That's the first place they encounter as they cross the river, right? And so, so what Moses is instructing them is, now when you go into the land, when the Lord your God brings you in and you encounter all these types of people, by the way, he reminds them, all these people, they're, they're more numerous than you are. They're bigger nations than you are. They're bigger groups of people than you are. They're mightier than you. They're better warriors. They're better at warfare they, they have a stronger reputation for warfare than you do. When you go in and you come up against all of those people, when the Lord God gives them over to you. Now, see, Moses can say this to the people, and the, and the Lord can say that through Moses because God has already given them victory up to this point over people who are mightier than they. Og, Sihon, right? These were people who had known giants, right? Known warriors, and yet God overcame them on behalf of the people. And so he's reminding them now, when you come in and you encounter all these people, and when the Lord gives them over to you, even though they're mightier than you, here's what you must do. You must devote them to complete destruction. Make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. Now we have looked at this, the phrase that's translated complete destruction is our devote to the complete destruction. That's one word in Hebrew. We've talked about that one word. It's harem, right? You remember we had to cough to say it, right? Harem, but it's a very significant word. 
And when you, if, depending on your translation, so you should take note of whatever translation you're using, how it translates this phrase, and then you can go do a search for that same phrase in that same translation and find most of the other places where it occurs. So this is the English Standard Version. I would type in, if I'm doing a search on blueletterbible.org or Bible Gateway or whatever your, your software is, I would type in, devote to destruction. And it would pull up most of the places where that same Hebrew word shows up. Now, we, we've talked about this because it's a, it's a problem for us. It came up early in Deuteronomy. We spent some time on it. We're going to spend some time on it again. It's a problem for us because here's what's clearly being communicated to the people. No one left living. When you encounter these people, no one should be left living. No man, no woman, no child. And that's a problem for us. That's a problem for us because we say that's not fair because now put yourself in the average Canaanite's shoes and these people come and sure, maybe your dad goes into war because that's what men do, right? And so they would go to war, but then they've got mom and the kids back home and she's just trying to raise a family the best she can and, and they worship their gods that they've always known. And now these people come into the land that you've just been born into. As far as you know, it's only been your land. And now these people are coming in and taking it from you right? This is the human perspective, right? And then these people come in and not only now have they killed every member of your army, but now they're coming and they're wiping out every village. We would call that genocide and we would condemn it, rightly so. But when God does this, we have to understand a few things. One, we need to remember, like we talked about last week, God is the creator of all things. He is sovereign, which means he is the one who is over all things. There's no greater power than him. There's no greater authority than him. As one of the Psalms says, the Lord sits enthroned upon um, the heavens and he does as he pleases. He is the ultimate authority. There is no other that is worthy to be worshiped but him. Now we've seen throughout the story of the Bible that people will still turn away from the one creator God and worship gods of their own creation. We've seen that. And we've seen God bring justice to those people because anyone who turns away from the creator God and worships a God of their own creation is rightly judged by the creator God because there's no higher being than him. There's no higher authority. So to rebel against him and to worship other gods of your own creation is to rebel against the one true God. Now this God of the Bible reveals to us that he is a just God, that he is a jealous God in the best of ways, right? Because he is the only one worthy to be worshiped, it's right for all people to worship him and therefore it's wrong for anyone to not worship him. And so his jealousy is for that which rightly belongs to him, right? So we've got a just God who is right in judging people who rebel against him. So we start there. That's our, that's our top of our, of our umbrella, if you will. And, and everything has to start to fall underneath that is God is the creator. How he ordered the world is how we should live in it. How he says we should live is how we should live. Who he says we should worship is who we should worship. We start with him. Anything that I think or desire or want to do that does not line up with him, I must come into alignment with him. He does not come into alignment with me, right? And so we start there. Now, the other thing you've got to remember is this land that they're about to go into, right now you've got the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the, the, all these different people living in it. But some 400, 500 years prior to this, 
God led a man named Abram through this land. The creator God, to whom the earth belongs, led Abram through this land. And he said, Abram, lift up your eyes and look. All that you see, I'm giving to you and your descendants. So this land is not for sale at this point. This land belongs to God and it's not for sale. The people here currently, they're just leasing it and their lease is now up. Right, and so, so you kind of understand some of this if you, uh, if, you, if you lease out your land. At some point, if you own the land, the person leasing your land, you have every right. Now, it's courteous of you to communicate, of course, right, in timely manner, but you have every right to say, I'm bringing this lease to an end so that I can use it for my own purposes at this point. That's what God's doing. This is his land. He said to Abram, I'm giving this to you. But Abram and his family have, have gone into Egypt, and there, while they were in Egypt for some 400 years, God grew them into a, a nation that they are now. And he's bringing them out of that, uh, that, that uh, slavery in Egypt, and he's now bringing them so that he can make good on his promise. So you, that's the second level, right? So God does as he pleases. He's the ultimate authority. He's making good on a promise. These people that are in the land, they're just leasing something that God has allowed them to be, a, the, to be in. But then three, we've got to remember that these people are worshiping other gods. The people in this land, they're not innocent people before God. In fact, let me just throw this out there. Nobody, apart from God's grace, is innocent before God on their own. Nobody. Every person that is born since Adam and Eve decided to rebel in the garden, every person that has been born has been born impacted and infected by sin. There is nobody that stands before God on their own merit innocent. We are all guilty. We're guilty because of our own sin, and even apart from our own sin, we're guilty because of Adam's sin. It has been transferred to us. All these people do not stand innocent before God. Furthermore, they're in active rebellion. They are worshiping other gods. They are worshiping other created beings. They are making statues of those created beings. They are right to be judged by God. As harsh as it is to us, in God's world, when you rebel against God, it is right for you to be judged by God. Now, God is a merciful God. He's a compassionate God. In fact, we're going to see that in a moment. But as we look at his instruction to the people, devote them to destruction, we've got to remember those three things. And then the fourth thing I would put before you is this. If you do a study of devote to destruction, you pull that up, in most of the places... In most of the places, you're going to find that the people that are being devoted to destruction are people who are associated with certain lines. You'll see the, word, the, the name Anakim come up a lot. In fact, we'll look at that here in just a moment. Or you might see Rephaim. You might see Nephilim. Right? These are the giants. These are the, the, the mixed breed, if you will, that, that came about as a result of the sin in Genesis 6, 1 through 4, where God's angels, sons of God, transgressed their proper boundary. They had some inappropriate relations with human women, and what came of that was this mixed, tainted breed, this bloodline called the Nephilim. These Nephilim, then they, they, they continue to pop, populate the earth. How did they get there after Noah's flood? We've talked about a few theories on that. Um, more than likely, they just continue to do this sin over and over again. In other words, the sin in Genesis 6, 1 through 4 was not the only time it happened. That's one possibility. That's the one I lean on. The other possibility is, 
well, maybe they somehow were in a bloodline somewhere else. I don't, I don't lean on that one. I lean on that one. We don't really know. But the point is, we still find them after the flood. They're related to certain families. Anak, the sons of Anak, that's called the Anakim. They're called Rephaim. We've looked at that when we looked at Deuteronomy 2, um, when, they, when they went up against Og, king of Bashan. But here's the thing. When you see complete, to the, to, to be complete destruction, it's most often, except for in this case actually, it's most often associated with destroying people that are linked to those families, those bloodlines. Why? Because part of the mission of God as he goes into the land is to clean this land out of that which is opposing him. To clean this land out which is opposed to his kingdom, which is what the angels, the sons of God, transgressed. And when they had had relations with uh, women, human women, they created this bloodline that is in opposition to God. And so the kingdom of God is coming against everything that's in opposition to them. So when the people come against any of these, these groups of people that have lineages linked to the Nephilim, they're being completely devoted to destruction and all of their animals and all of their gold and all of their riches. Let me show you. This is Numbers chapter 13. This is when the spies, 38 years earlier, from what we're looking at, 38 years earlier, the spies, 12 of them were sent into the land to spy it out. And they were bringing back a report. You remember, 10 of them gave a negative report. Two of them said, we can do this with God's help. But here's the report. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. They're giants. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, well, that's where we get Anakim, who come from the Nephilim. So you see a clear connection here. Anakim, sons of Anak, are related to the Nephilim, the people that, that went to spy in the land. They said, we saw them in the land. In other words, they're there. The flood has already happened, but they're there. So you have to wrestle with how they get there. Okay? So that's, that's what they see in this land. Now, they never made it into the land because of this report. That generation was wiped out. That generation right here that gave this report and everyone of that generation that believed them, they wandered in the desert for 40 years. One year for each day that the spies were in the land because they did not believe God. And now here they are again in Deuteronomy standing on the cusp of the land. That report is still true. The, the Nephilim are still in the land that they're about to go into. The Anakim are still in the land that they're about to go into. That has not changed. Now, the book after Deuteronomy is the book of Joshua, and it's in the book of Joshua that you see the people cross into the land and start to, to, to go and take these places that God has been instructing them. And look what Joshua's mission is. I'm going to show you in Joshua chapter 11. Um, that should be 21 through 23. I did that last week. I had an extra two in there. And Joshua came at the time and cut off the Anakim. We just saw them, right? They're related to the Nephilim. So Joshua came at the time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Devir, from Anab, and from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. So that's both north and south. Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. That's their instruction, so Joshua's carrying that out. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. Joshua's following the mission of God. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the peoples of Israel. He cleaned it out. Only in Gaza, 
in Gath and in Ashdod. Those are Philistine cities. Do you remember a Philistine giant that comes up later in Bible story? And then he gets taken care of too, doesn't he? And David picks up five stones, not because he thought he might miss on the first one, but because Goliath had brothers. Okay? And so Ashdod did some remain. So all the, the, the land that God is giving to Israel, Joshua drives out all of the people. He destroys all of the Anakim. There's only a few that get left in Ashdod in this Philistine cities. Verse 23, so Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest from war. That was Joshua's mission. He was clear. I'm going into the land. We're going to give the people the land that God is allotting to them. But when we come across these particular people, he singles out the Anakim. So when I'm, what I'm saying to you is back here in Deuteronomy chapter 7, when it says you must devote them to complete destruction, every time except for this one right here, every time you see devoted to destruction or that word harem show up, it's in relation to the giants. It's in relation to destroying those bloodlines and those linked to them. Why not here? Because this is a general statement. It's a general statement and it lines up with what we looked up uh, in, Deuteron um, in Numbers 13, which was a general statement. There's Anakim in the land. And so Moses is recalling that general report from the spies back in Numbers. And so he's given them general instruction. But then when you see it actually carried out, it's very specific who it's tied to. Look it up, dig into it, study it. It's the best answer I've found. Best Best thing that I, that I have come to, to be able to say, that makes sense because the, the, the one that I had before that, before discovering this with the help of some, is God can do whatever he pleases and who am I to argue? And that's a good answer. But this helps at least fill in the gap a little bit because I think God helps us to see that. All right, so if you have questions about that, hit me up. All right, so you must devote them to destruction. But remember, no rivalries. How do God's people live set apart? No rivalries to God. That right there, those are rivalries. These people who worship other gods, they're rivalries. You cannot leave them in the midst of you. Look what he does next. Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 3. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and, you would and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars, dash into pieces their pillars, chop down their asherim, and burn their carved images with fire. Man, they would never make it in America. There is no religious freedom right here. God is the only God who should be worshipped and God's people must deal with anyone who is opposed to them. That's what God's telling them. Go and destroy everything that's sacred to them. Every statue. So he says things like um, dash down their, or break down their altars. That's where they would have made sacrifices to their gods. Sometimes those sacrifices were their own kids. And dash into pieces their pillars. These would be like stone statues. Think like Stonehenge, right? Um, or the one that's in Georgia that's kind of similar where there's stone uh, towers kind of erected, but they're erected to false gods. Chop down their asherim. That's, those are statues made to a very specific god We'll get into her later. And then burn their carved images with fire. These would have been carved images of these other gods. Completely destroy them. And, but before he gave them that instruction, he said, don't intermarry with them. Um, in the name of Christ, the church has done a great disservice to people 
by misunderstanding that right there and misapplying that right there. See, God's very clear. I'm bringing you into this land. I don't want you to marry them. I don't want your sons marrying them. I don't want you giving your daughters to marry them. Why? Because or for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. God's concern is that I don't want you intermarrying with people who worship other gods. And that would be all these people in the other lands because then you will be led astray because when you marry someone, you compromise your beliefs. And if you and your husband or you and your wife don't share the same beliefs, the chances are you're going to compromise your beliefs to some extent. If you're dating, listen to me, missionary dating is a bad, bad, bad idea. You will not likely lead someone to Christ by dating them. You will compromise. And if you want to lead them to Christ, you're probably going to be more effective if you don't date them because your dating will end more than likely. And then what are you going to do with that relationship? Missionary dating, no good. I guess if there's ever a thing called missionary marrying, you shouldn't do that either, right? But there's some clear instruction on that. But this is what God's concern is. Don't intermarry because they're gonna lead your sons and your daughters astray to serve other gods. That's God's concern. God's not against the other people. He's against them because they worship other gods. Because you might remember just in Joshua, there's a lady named Rahab who's a prostitute from the town of Jericho who, who believes in their God and he, she's brought in. By the way, she makes it into the line of Jesus. You might remember Moab, um, I mean Ruth, who is a Moabitess, who she would have been coming from other, other pagan religions and yet she worships the true God and she's brought in and, and so then she makes it into the line of Jesus. God's not against other ethnicities. That's what I'm getting to here. But the church in... in just, just a, a misunderstanding, maybe, maybe a, a wrongful intent, I don't know, but a misunderstanding have taken verses like this and say, and they said this, interracial marriage is wrong. And that is not what that says. And that is not what that's about. Interracial marriage is not something that God is concerned about here. He's concerned about worshiping other gods. Because those other gods are worshiped by people who are other ethnicities, that's why he's concerned with this. Interracial marriage is, at, at bottom is not his concern. Okay? Are we, are we clear on that? That's not that. If you use this verse to support um, any kind of view against interracial marriage and apply it today, that doesn't work. Okay? All right, that's not the sermon, though. But he's telling the people, you got to be completely set apart. No rivals. So if you're going to be marrying into these other families, that's going to bring rivals in. You can't serve other gods. Okay? So he's helping them understand there's no rivalries. That's how you live set apart. Let's keep going. Verse six. Verse six. We'll read through eight. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were fewest of all the peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and it's keeping the oath that they swore to the fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. You are a people holy, set apart to the Lord your God. That's why you don't intermarry. That's why you destroy everything that is opposed to God because you are a people set apart to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. I, I love it. So here's how the nation of Israel came about. God created them. 
God took one man who came out of the area of Mesopotamia, the ancient civilizations of Mesopotamia, we would say in the area of maybe Babylon or Syria, Ur of the Chaldees, right? He took a man, Avram, whose family was pagan worshipers. They worshiped other gods, just like everyone else in Babylon of that day. He took a man and he said, come follow me to the land that I'm leading you. And then here's the promises that I will give you. And Abraham converted He became a God worshiper, right? He took a man and he says, from you, from you, I'm going to give you many descendants. And from Abraham, one man plucked out of the middle of a place of rebellion, because what else happened in Babylon right about the time of Abraham? The Tower of Babel. It's right after the Tower of Babel, Genesis 11, that we learn about Genesis 12, where God picks Abraham out of that same region and he sets him apart. It's because God has chosen you, and then that promise is passed from Abram to Isaac, Isaac to Jacob. Jacob's other name is Israel. Jacob had 12 sons. That becomes the tribes of Israel. Now you have this nation that God created. This was, this was not a nation that was already in existence. In fact, we're not going to look at it today, but Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9, we have looked at it so many times. Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9 is the backstory to what's going on when Babel, uh, when Babel happens. So when God scatters people at the Tower of Babel, we get one story in Genesis 11, we get the backstory in Deuteronomy 32, verses 8 and 9. And one of the things we're told in those verses is that while God disinherited all these other nations and turned them over to worship these other gods, Israel, the nation of Israel, he took for himself. You're my treasured possession. They belong to God. He created them for him and for his purposes. Now, I'm just going to say this. This is under an old covenant. Now the people of God are under a new and better covenant. And if this is God's heart under an old covenant for his people, do you think it's changed under a new covenant, a new and better covenant? No. If you are in Christ and you are part of the new covenant, you too are God's treasured possession. In fact, Ephesians chapter one picks that up, verse 11. We read that and we read about an inheritance. The inheritance is not ours. The inheritance in Ephesians one is God's. We, in Ephesians chapter one, the people of God, believers in Christ, we are God's chosen. We are the ones he has set his love upon. We are his inheritance. Same thing. You are God's treasured people, treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, does God love people differently? Yep, he does. There's at least four different types of ways we see God love in throughout the scriptures. And one of the ways that we see God love is the very specific, very special, very unique love he has for his people. You see it in the Old Testament. You see it in the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, not the world. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. The church are believers. The world does not include just believers. There's, different, there's differing degrees, differing types of love that God has for people. He, say, he can say of one people, you're my treasured possession. Verse 7, not because we were in mighty number. He didn't pick you because you were mighty in number. He created you out of one man. Um, he set his love on you and he chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. Basically what Moses is saying is, hey, um, when you consider why you are God's treasured possession, why he has set your, his love upon you, it has nothing to do with you. 
In fact, what it has to do with is God just loves you. That's, that's on one level, that's all, all he's saying is God loves you because he loves you. But what he's helping us understand is he loves you specifically because he's keeping promise to Abram, whom he said, I will be your God. I, I, will, I will bless you and through you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So you today, he's saying, Moses is saying to the people, you today have God's love set upon you and it has nothing to do with how mighty you are, how numerous you are. It has everything to do with God keeping his promises, being faithful to do what he said he was gonna do and he's choosing to love you because he chooses to love you. So here's the question. When you think about God loving you, I'm speaking to you if you're a believer in Christ, if you think about God loving you, how you believe or the reason you believe God has set his love upon you has tremendous ramifications. See, if I believe that God has set his love upon me because of my righteousness, the way I live my life, how good I can be as compared to others, then I will be filled and consumed with pride and I will stand or fall and I will fall before God based on my own righteousness. I will not be able to stand before God based upon my own righteousness. I believe he has set his love upon me because of my righteousness. I must stand or fall based on my own righteousness and I will fall. If I'm a believer in Christ, and even as a believer in Christ, I, somewhere in the midst of there I say, oh, God has set his love upon me because I chose to believe and I elevate my belief to the level of a work. When I elevate my belief to, an, to a level of something that I can boast, of, well, I believe when I'm five, you're 40, what? Right, and see, we do that, right? And so then what we're doing is we're elevating faith to a work, right? If I believe, well, he loves me because I believe, well, then we're making his decision to love based on first my decision to believe. Can't have that. What happens with that is I still have pride. It might be just cloaked in self-righteousness now. And then it, it's still now I live my life based on, on my own self-righteousness. So it's, it's, it's like... Maybe I've moved a little bit better higher up the continuum, but I'm still prideful and I'm just cloaking that pride in self-righteousness because I'm thinking I did something. But if I follow verses like this or Ephesians chapter one and I realize God set his love upon me and it has nothing to do with me, he's being faithful to a promise he's made and he's chosen to love me because he chose to love me. I receive that by faith. Now I am humbled. Why me? Why Israel of all the nations of the earth? Why them? Of anyone he could have picked, why them? See, the, the question's not meant to be answered necessarily. It's meant to, to invoke humility in them. That's what Moses is going after. Don't think about yourselves as being more numerous. Don't think about yourselves as being mightier. God loves you. He has set his love upon you because he chose to do that and he's being faithful to his promise. And that then allows me to be free to live God's love for me doesn't change based on the way I live my life. His love for me is consistent because his love for me is in Christ. And the same love that the Father has for the Son from all of eternity is now the same love that is put on me when I'm in Christ. That's what Jesus said in John, in John chapter 17. The same love that God the Father has had for God the Son for all of eternity is now the same love that is directed and set upon me when I'm in Christ. It can never, it can never grow it can never decrease. It is full always. And it's not changing based on my choices, my performance. Not, not his love, but his blessing. Let's keep going. I'm going to skip some verses here and jump us down here. So no rivalries. The second thing, how do we live set apart? 
is we experience God's blessing in sanctification. That's how God's people are set apart. They experience God's blessing in sanctification. That word sanctification is just a big word that means the process that I'm in as a believer in Christ. That progressively growing, I'm more and more being shaped into the image of Christ. I'm growing. I'm on a path that God has begun, and he who has begun a good work in me will be faithful to bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. Sanctification. Not salvation, not the, not the entering into the covenant, not the entering into the relationship, not being saved. We're talking about people who have already been redeemed, who are already under the covenant. We experience God's blessing in sanctification, and that sets God's people apart. Let's look at it. Verse 12. And because you listen to these rules and keep them and do them, the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love that he swore to your fathers. He will love you, bless you, and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your wine and your oil, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock in the land that he swore to your fathers to give you. God's going to multiply and he's going to bless. So Moses says to the people, if you keep the covenant, these people have already been redeemed. Listen now, they have already been brought out of slavery in Egypt. They have already been brought into the covenant with God. We are talking about people who have already come under the covenant. We're now talking about how they live in the context of that relationship with God, in the land that God bringing them to. How do they live? If you keep the covenant with, you, with me, then I'm going to keep it with you. God's not, not going to fail to keep his covenant. The question here, or, or the conditionality is, is, will he keep it with them? Will he keep it with this generation? And that's what's conditional here is the blessings of the covenant. God's going to be faithful to bring his covenant to Abram about. It will come about. It has come about at this point, right? He, he is going to be faithful. The question is when you're in the land, will you experience the blessings of the covenant? That's what he's talking about here. If you are faithful, if you keep the covenant. So God's blessings upon his people in their sanctification, in their growing, that sets apart. He says, and then if you do that, you'll be blessed and you'll be multiplied. So you'll, you'll be multiplied. There'll, there'll be fruitfulness in your womb. There will be no barrenness among your people. He says that. There'll be no barrenness among your people. There'll be no barrenness on your land either. So you'll have fruit from the womb and fruit from the ground. And then he says, I'm going to bless you. So you're going to have an abundance, right? That's what it looks like for God's people to keep covenant with God and God to keep covenant with them as he's going to bless them. It's going to stand out. That's what would draw people in. We go on and we look at verse 14, still talking about these blessings. You shall be blessed above all peoples. Well, God, that's not fair. Yeah, God doesn't have to be fair. God is gracious, right? He can do as he pleases. And this is his treasured possession. His people are his treasured possession. He's going to bless them. But remember, the bigger picture is God is blessing the people of Israel. He's, he's living in a context of a covenant with them because they are to be a light to the nations. God's not trying to just be exclusive for all eternity. He's working through one specific group of people at this point. That group of people is supposed to be his missionaries to the rest of the world, bringing them back to God. And man, when God blesses his people, it, it, it shows the set-apartness, the holiness. And, and I, I highlighted this statement because, verse 15, the Lord will take away from you all sickness. That's a big statement. All 
sickness. And by the way, he won't put on you the sicknesses that you just saw happen in Egypt. But if you keep covenant with God in the land, you're going to have no sickness, no barrenness of womb. Now, I think you got to be careful not to make a one-to-one comp- um, application now, right? You got to, you got to, you got to be careful not to go. Well, if I'm faithful to God, there won't be this or that. But here's what I want you to pick up on this for. I want you to pick up on this. Under the old covenant, sickness was a negative thing. Sickness was an enemy. And it was one that God was going to keep his people from. Now, under a new and better covenant, do you think God has changed his view on sickness? No. The answer to that is no. That doesn't mean God doesn't have purposes in sickness, but I want you to to see the, the, the attitude, the disposition that God has towards sickness under this covenant. And I'm suggesting to you, under a new and better covenant, he's not gonna make sickness all of a sudden a positive thing. It's still the enemy. It is still a result of sin in the world. Therefore, it is not of God. Does that mean God can't, can't use it? No, God can use whatever he wants. He can use all things to work together for good for those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. But I don't want you to miss the attitude that God has towards sickness. You keep covenant with me and I won't, I won't give you, you won't have any of those sicknesses. Okay, so the people of God are set apart when they experience the blessings of God in the midst of sanctification. And by the way, keeping covenant means being faithfully obedient. What, how do I grow in sanctification as a believer in Christ now? I'm faithfully obedient to God in the power of the Spirit. That's, that's what I do. How do I grow? How do I mature? I am faithfully obedient to obey God and what he's instructed and how he's called me to live. And as I am faithfully obedient, yes, I will experience the blessings of God in my life. Am I making a one-to-one where I'm creating a formula? No, that's where we go wrong. We can't create formulas with God. God is free to do whatever he wants. I am not gonna stand up here and say to God, because I did this, you owe me. I'm not doing that. I'm not going to presume upon God. I'm going to say, God, I'm going to trust you. This is how you say I should live my life. This is what's best. You love me. I'm your treasured possession. And so I'm going to follow your path. And your path leads to life. That's all throughout the scriptures. Your path leads to life. My path leads to death. Okay? So I'm just going to pause and I guess just say this. If you're a believer in Christ and you're experiencing one thing after another, one thing after another, one thing after another, it's not necessarily because you've got disobedience in your life. Okay, so I'm not, I'm not making that one-to-one, but you and I must always be open to that category because if I am living disobediently, I need to be able to see the connections. Okay? So what I'm not going to do is walk up to you and I don't know anything about your life and say, you've got sickness in your life. Well, you're disobedient. No, we're going to have a conversation. And if there is some disobedience going on in your life, then I might help you see that there might be a connection here. Did you notice that? And we've talked about that multiple times, right? If you can pinpoint, I've got this going on in my life. I happen to notice it came into my life when I did this or started down this path. Do you think there might be a correlation? That's not legalism. That, that is looking at, that, at, at things that the scriptures tell us are still possibilities. But I need to have that category. I need to have that category. All right, so sanctification. We experience the blessing of God in sanctification. The last way that we are set apart, God's people are set apart, is we trust God to act on our behalf. I'm gonna wrap it up here. Verse 17. I didn't think I was gonna be able to hit on every verse today. 
and I didn't. So if you say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all in Egypt. The great trials that your eyes saw, signs, wonders, the mighty hand and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out, so will the Lord your God do to all the peoples whom you are afraid of. Moreover, I'm gonna stop there actually. All right, so the people, Moses is saying, now as you prepare to go in the land, if you should find yourself doubting, if you should find yourself thinking, I can't, we can't, they're greater, we're not. We call this today, uh, Paul in, in 2 Corinthians 10 would call this a stronghold. This is a pattern of thinking that is not influenced by God, but that is, that is from something other than God that makes its way into our mind and starts to shape the way we live. If you should find yourself thinking, if you should find yourself saying in your heart, these nations are greater than we are. We can't do this. But yet God has said, do it. And God has already shown you that he can do it. And then you in the face of that are saying, I can't. Do you see what happens here? God says, do it. And you say, I can't. Do you see the problem here? Okay, parents, if you tell your kids to do something, then they say, I can't. And it's not because they're unable, but you said, I will help you. And they say, I can't. My room is too dirty. <laughs> do you accept that answer? No, you don't accept that answer. You motivate them, right? That's, that's phrase. That's a, that's a secret phrase right there. You motivate them, right? You get them to where they're cleaning up their room because they're going to obey you. So when you say to you in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? But God has said, go in and take them. You're disobeying. You are doubting God because when God speaks, it gets done. When God speaks, things are created. So when God says, I will be there, I will do this on your behalf, and you say, but what if? That's doubt that is rooted in a disbelief. That's sin. Is there room for doubt? Yeah, yeah, we can talk about that another day. That's not this kind of doubt. When God has said, do it, and you say, can't, okay? Moses says, when you find yourself doing that, though, you need to remember what the Lord your God did. Look back. Look on your history. Look at the mighty things that he did in Egypt, the signs, the wonders, all those things. God's power, which oftentimes will accompany, uh, is accompanying his presence. Now, I'm making that distinction because sometimes God's presence and God's power are not experienced at the same time or in the same way. He's always present, but there's a power that so many times we're missing out on. When God's power is accompanying his presence, it's for his people's encouragement and it builds their faith. He overcame the people in Egypt. He overcame Pharaoh. He judged every God there was. And now he's saying to his people, look back. Let that stir you now for what lays ahead. When you look back on what God has done, how he has operated in power in your life, he does that not only for that moment, but that's so that in future moments, you can look back on that and say, he did it then. There's nothing my God can't do now. If he did it then, why won't he do it now? If he, if he didn't withhold Christ from us, why would he withhold any good thing? Romans 8, 32. Look back. And then he's going to say, and then moreover, know this. He's going to go ahead of you. He says in verse 21, you shall not be in dread of him for the Lord your God is in your midst. If you find yourself doubting child of God, son, daughter, if you're in Christ, you're a son, you're a daughter of God. You find yourself doubting when God has led you into something. You need to remember not just what God has done, but God is in your midst now. Now. 
And the distinction of the people of God is that God dwells among his people. Now, currently, you know his name? Yahweh, or you know there's different ways to say it, but Yahweh, you know what it means? It's a verb. It's present tense. It's I am. He's in your midst now. He's not the I was God or the I will be God. He's the I am. He's here now. And when you were back in the past and he demonstrated his power and presence in your life, he was I am. And when you face now, whatever it is you're facing now, he is still I am. And when you get to whatever lies ahead of you and you're in it in that moment, he is I am. Do you see it? He's with you. He's not just a past or a future. He's now. He's with you now. The people of God are distinct and they're holy because God dwells among his people. And so he says to them, you need to remember that I'm with you. And so he tells them, I'm gonna drive them out with hornets, right? All right, I'm gonna jump down to the very end. He says, when you get to them and you, you destroy their gods and their altars and all that, don't keep the gold and silver. You're gonna want to, he says. I'm down here in verse 26. You shall not bring an abominable thing into your house and become devoted to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest and abhor it, for it is devoted to destruction. It's a long chapter. But because God sets his people apart, his people must live set apart. That's not changed. That's not changed. The New Testament is filled with instructions and commands to obey. Live a life worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Don't go back into this, but instead go this way. It's filled with it. So... Holy Spirit, come behind me now and illumine our minds. Give us understanding of what we've just looked at. God, if I've said anything that's not accurate for you, then block our ears from that. And help us to hear the things that are from you, that they might then be planted in fertile soil of our hearts, grow deep roots, and change us. Give us understanding of what it looks like, what you're, you're teaching us through this word, so how we should live now. And God, help us to be a people who live set apart. Not just, not, not, not so that we can become prideful or boastful, that others might see, others might hear, and they might then go, who is this God? 